The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Amen. Amen. Church, you can have a seat. I love the fact um, that we have sung and already proclaimed the gospel all morning, and I just want to thank all the worship team and Blanca, Herb, um, what a joy it is to do this. Listen, happy Mother's Day. Uh, My mom is uh, not able to be here with me in person, but cool thing is she's right there in that camera, so happy Mother's Day. I love you. Um, Thank you, mothers, for all that you do, all that you do. Listen, I'm excited for this morning. Um, This morning, we're looking at one of Romans' most well-known verses. Uh, We're looking at one of those verses that gets quoted quite a bit. Uh, Actually, we're looking at one of those verses that you hear every time a pastor gives kind of an altar call moment, or anytime you're talking with someone about, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If anyone asks you, how do I follow Jesus? Chances are this verse uh, influences what you say in response. I'll put it that way. Um, And there's a good reason for this, but here's the deal with this verse. This classic and quotable and simple verse is just, comes right in the middle of uh, a really challenging passage. A really challenging passage. It comes right out of a verse that leaves us saying, Paul, what are, what? And and I, I love this because if you think about it, the most simple truth that we have as Christians to share with those who are seeking and asking what it means to follow Jesus comes right in the middle of, of a text that causes all of us to say, oh, teach me, Lord. And I love this because the gospel, we say this all the time, but the gospel is both milk and meat. We never outgrow it. We never move on from it. This text is a beautiful reminder of that. But it is one of those texts that will echo Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, where he says, you know, Paul writes a lot of things, and some of them are difficult to understand. Um, how relatable is that text? Uh, this is one of those that, that is, is difficult for us as we engage in it. But by the grace of God, and and with a lot of humility here, we are going to come into this text and we are going to work to put it together. Put it together and, and, and to see what God has for us. And also this morning, just so you know, we're going to be reading this text along with another verse, another text. Uh, we're going to be bouncing back and forth, back and forth. And, and I, I think you're going to see why here in a bit. Um, but the first text that we're going to be in is actually Deuteronomy 30. So if you want to cheat and get a head start, head over there. Um, Deuteronomy 30 is going to be where we're going to, one of the places we're going to be bouncing. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the patience of God. We talked about the fact that our God is, is that, that common phrase in scripture, abounding in steadfast love. He's patient, he's kind, and we see it all throughout the Bible. And uh, honestly, if you ever are in a place where you're wondering, God, are you still putting up with me? Are you still patient with me? I encourage you to pick this up and open it to anywhere, and you're going to see most likely a story of God being very patient with his people. We see this all throughout scripture, and today 
we're going to be drawn back to a very specific story of the people of Israel uh, back in the time of Moses. And if you ever read any of these narratives, you, you come away with, like, really? I really? And so you see, for example, you see um, God just do something miraculous, like deliver his people, I mean, totally obliterate an army so that they could be free and, and just do crazy things like that. Not just that, but like that. And then almost immediately, it seems like in the text, the people will go from awe of God to worshiping jewelry that they put together and made. Like, you look at that and you're like, really? And it could get kind of frustrating. And then you start to see yourself in it. And you start to see how quickly we, we're prone to wonder, how we're prone to forget. Um, we're prone to crazy. Like, when you start to see that you're prone to crazy, the crazy that you read starts to, ah, I get it. And so many times it does that, and this is one of those texts. So in Deuteronomy 30, we are, like I said, going to be flipping back and forth between this and Romans 10. But in Deuteronomy 30, starting verse 9, we read that God is going to bless the people. And we read it's not because they're great farmers. It's not because they're great military strategic minds. No, it's because God is blessing them. It's because God is good. God is going before them. And he says, uh, the Lord will again take delight in prospering you he, um, as he took delight in, in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes. Um, that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So let's pause here. Um, That's kind of the point, isn't it? Uh, God, we get that, but we can't do it. Like, we can't do that. We, we, time and time again, we know your commandments, we see your commandments, we have your commandments, and yet we fail, yet we fall, yet we sin, and we sin against God. And, and so we've been given like these commandments the same way they were. So they were given these commandments, these statutes, and they know them. And all they did was serve to remind them that they couldn't actually do it. Like, that's crazy. And so they had them, but listen to verse 11. And this is the part that we're going to be bouncing, okay? For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. (laughs) Uh, Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven. You got to go there and say, we'll ascend to heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. It's also not in the depths of the sea, right? That that you should say, who's going to go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And Moses says, so that you can do it. So here in Deuteronomy, the word is near, very near. It's in our hearts and mouths so you can do it. All right. Let's parallel now. Let's head to Romans 10. This is our text this morning. Romans 10. We're going to be starting in verse 5. And here's what I believe. I believe that this is going to give us... Paul is going to give us the fullness of what Deuteronomy 30 has laid before us. Um, 
I believe this is, uh, I've, I've talked about this before, but I love it when God gives us the privilege of having those aha moments where lights just come on and you see things. And that was me this week. This, this kind of stopped me in my tracks this week, um, which has made sermon prep very difficult. I've just wanted to just stop and forget the sermon part and just sit. But it has been one of those aha moments for me this week. And so holding your place in Deuteronomy 30, um, let's head to, to Romans 10 and let's, let's now put this together. Okay. Um, let's start with verse five and this will sound familiar. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. But but, listen to how Paul now directs us to what lies deeper, to faith, not works. Listen to what Paul does here. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And then listen, Paul says, But what does it say? The word is near to you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So so here in this text, Paul is going back to Deuteronomy 30, and he's filling in some gaps. And uh, I would guess that everyone here, regardless of your translation that you have, um, will see Paul quoting... And then you'll see a parentheses with a description of uh, Paul gives a quote, parentheses, and he'll say, that is. So it's kind of a description. Uh, and so it's like Paul is giving us clarification statements for Deuteronomy. He's like giving us his, his, his commentary here. And so he says, uh, who will send to heaven? Parentheses. That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up. Um, and again, the word is near you in your heart and in your or in your mouth and in your heart. That is, again, clarification statements here. And so what Paul's doing is he's filling in gaps. He's filling in gaps and helping us to see here. So let's get, let's unpack this a little bit. And, and before we really uh, go further in this text, as we are going to push on a little further, I, I want to give us a little foundation, a little foundation that we're going to build on, okay? So, um, when we ask, like, Paul, what are you saying here? What should we see in this? It's important to build on this foundation. And, and so the first thing that we need to see as we build this foundation is that you are not able to keep the law in your own power. So Paul has been very clear about this. You've never been able, humanity has never been able to keep the law perfectly. If you were able to be perfect, and I mean perfectly, perfectly perfect. I mean perfect, holy and just and righteous. If you, if you could do that, you could live that life, fulfill the law of God perfectly in your heart and in your actions. If you could do that, you would not need a savior. But here's the problem. <laughs> you are sinners by nature and by choice, fully and completely. There has never been a child born who has not sinned, ever, minus Jesus, apart from Jesus. And so we are born into sin. We're naturally sinners. Apart from Jesus, there is no one righteous. No, not one, as as Romans has already said. We have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans has said. He's built this foundation. And this means you are not perfect. You are not righteous. You are not holy. I don't want to offend you, but you're not even good. 
Maybe I do want to offend you a little bit. You're, if you think you are, you're not even good. Like, that's, that's not you. And therefore, that means you cannot save yourself. You need a savior. So what the law does is it gives us the right direction, but gives us no power to actually fulfill it. It gives us the, but it just doesn't give us the power to fulfill it. In fact, I'll push it forward. It, what it really does is it reveals our inability. It just reveals our sin. It reveals our inability to get there. It reveals, church, our need for a savior. And that is a gift that God has given you when we realize our need for a savior. So you're not able to keep the law. Um, but the other side of this is that Jesus did. So Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. I'm reminded of his words in Matthew 5 that said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. Jesus Christ fulfilled what we could not do. Through his perfect life, he fulfilled what we could not do. But he didn't just do it for him so that he could like, nailed it. Like He didn't do that. He did it for those on behalf of those who could not. He did it on behalf of the one who could not. Who, to the one who would trust in him, believe in him. And, and this is the foundation of the gospel. It's, you can't do it. Jesus did. Right. It's, 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 you're not perfect. Jesus is. Right. The good news of the gospel is to trust in the one who could not do what we, what we who did what we could not do for ourselves. That's, that's the goodness of the gospel, grace. So that's the first thing. Let me push it a little deeper here. Um, just as we're building this foundation, I want to make sure it's firm here. Um, you can't do it. Jesus did, right? Here's, here's another truth here. You don't meet him halfway. You don't meet Jesus halfway in your salvation. I want to be very, this is big. So um, I am a product of the 90s and early 2000s worship or church culture uh, which means the worship music of that time period. If you missed out on that, you missed it. But if you, if you were in it, you know what I'm talking about. I, and I don't want to be too mean about this because there were some good ones, right? There, there were some good, good songs um, back then. In fact, there are, there are some I haven't played in years. I haven't even heard in years. But if we had the time, I could pick this up and I could probably remember every single chord and sing every single word because it's like, sheer muscle memory at this point. But um, I remember coming up through this, this time, and uh, although some were good, there were some really bad songs that came out at this time, some just theologically rough songs. Um, and uh, one of those songs that I don't happen to love uh, theologically came, came up as I, was, as I was sitting in this text. And um, I liked this song, so let me just write, because I loved the guitar riff it had, and it was just fun to play. But um, this song had a particular refrain, and if you know anything about the music at this time, the key to a good worship song was re repetition. So if you had one line that you repeated 13 times, building and then dropping and then building again, like that was it. You had the makings of a hit. And um, this song had this refrain, it was three words, just three words. Uh, and, and they repeated a lot. It was, I found Jesus. I found Jesus. I found Jesus. You get the point. Um, and uh, I get it, and I get what's being communicated here. I, I, I do, but we got to be careful with our words because they're teaching. 
And uh, um, here's the reality. Jesus is not lost. <laughs> He's not lost. He's, uh, he doesn't need to be found. Um, and in fact, Scripture says he's never you know, been lost. You were lost. Uh, more than that, here's the reality. Like, like, I didn't find him. So it's not like this weird, dark game of hide and seek. Jesus, where are you? Like, um, ready or not, here I come. Like, it doesn't, that's not the, the, what Scripture presents with the way we find Jesus. I didn't find Jesus. In fact, Scripture tells me of the, that it is Jesus on the search mission. <laughs> it, is, it is Jesus who is the one doing the finding, who is seeking and saving the lost. That's Jesus. That's I found Jesus. No, Jesus found me. He found me. Jesus found me. And you hear that and you think, okay, pastor, come on, that's nitpicking. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Because like I said, words teach. They, they, they teach. The words we say and we use are important. And to go back to Paul's words in Romans. Okay, you'll see what I mean here. Don't say in your heart who's going to ascend into heaven to you know, bring Jesus down. Don't say in your heart who's going to go down deep, bring Jesus up. In other words, you and I are not the ones ascending to heaven saying, I found him. I found Jesus, right? You're also not the ones that go down into the depths and say, I found him. He was hiding. I found him. I found Jesus. That's not you. That's not who we are. The incarnation of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that it was Jesus who came down to us. And it is Jesus who rose, who is present with us. That's Jesus. So now we're reminded that nothing we can do, nowhere we can go, can find him, can save ourselves. And I'm going to push this even further here. Nothing we can do can make ourselves more savable or findable. Paul is getting to the heart of the problem, and the Part of the problem is our hearts that we want to work for it. We want to at least say we met him halfway. To go into the text, you know, here um, we, we see the ancient church saying, at least let us do the law. We'll meet you halfway. Sometimes it's, 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 it might be easy for us to admit, like, yeah, we get it. Okay, Jesus does the saving. But then we click back into old ways of thinking that think like I need to do the work at least to make myself more savable, at least to make myself more findable. Like I've got to meet him halfway. And if I meet him halfway, then, and it just spirals. It's the same old lie. It's the same, it's the same lie that I need to clean up or at least meet Jesus halfway so he can save me. Church, foundationally, you can't do it. Jesus did. You do not assist in it. Jesus did it completed through his work. He came to you. Word came flesh. He didn't meet us halfway. He took that whole journey. He, he took the whole journey to you. He conquered death, present with you. This is his work, and this is the gospel, and it leads us now to the main point of our text. So if you were to look at Deuteronomy 30, that section, if you were to look at Romans 10 in our section and you think, you know, what is the main point of it? At church, I believe this is it. 
Paul says, what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith we proclaim. To use Moses' words, Deuteronomy 30, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The main point of these texts is that the word is not far off. It is the word is in your mouth and in your heart. That's the main point of this text. And, and now here's what I believe happens. Paul is going to fill in some of the gaps that we have as we look at this. He's going he's gonna to give us some definitions of what this, this means. And, and this is where Paul's words in, in Romans 10 just kind of changed everything. It was that aha moment for me this week. Um, it's one of those crazy moments where he just unpacks this. And so let's do it. Let's look at verse nine as he, as he digs in. Because, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's bring this together. Both Paul and Moses have told us something. They told us that the word is near, very near. The word is in your mouth and in your heart. So what Paul is going to do now is give us some definitions on what that means. The first thing he does, really three definitions that I want to bring out. Um, There is a lot more. I probably had 13, but three will do. Um, Three things that Paul does here that brings some definition to this. Number one, he gives, so, so Paul and Moses said the word is near. What Paul is going to do now is give the word a name. That name is Jesus. He gives the word a name, Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate word, the word that put on flesh to dwell with us. So now Paul says, if you confess Jesus, if you believe In Jesus, you will be saved. Paul directs us to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is near. In our mouths and in our hearts. And through Jesus, through Christ in our mouths and in our hearts, we're going to be talking about that, um, you, you, you can't fulfill the law in your own flesh. We already said that. But Jesus did. And Paul reminds us here that because this is true, you can be righteous in the sight of God through the one who was perfectly righteous for you, and that is done through faith. So what Paul does, just real quickly, the first definition is that he gives the word a name. That's Jesus. Number two, he defines what it means to have the word near in your mouth and in your heart. The mouth, Paul says, is our confession of Jesus. The, the heart, Paul says, is our belief and our trust in Jesus. That's what it means, Paul says, for the word to be near in our mouth and in our heart. It is our confession and our belief in Jesus. That's the second thing. So, number one, he gives the word a name, that's Jesus. He, Paul also tells us a little bit more of what it means to have the word near in our mouth and our heart. It's our confession and our belief. And number three, 
Paul also defines what it means when Moses says that crazy statement, so you can do it. The, the way Paul says it, he doesn't use the term, you can do it. Paul uses a different way of saying it. He says, you will be saved. You will be saved. Paul is giving us clarity and definition by pointing us to Jesus. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then listen to this verse. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Honestly, this verse has caused a lot of uh, conversation. A lot of conversation. Because you read this and, and you ask the question, now, Paul, what does it take to be saved? Like, is it just faith? Is it confession? Do you have to do them both? Like, could that be a work? Like, is it simple belief in Jesus or does there need to be a confession? Does faith save us? Does confession save us? Listen, all those questions, they're fine. Okay, they're fine. Uh, they might even be important to have in some context. As we get to this text, though, my fear is that having those questions take away from the meaning of this text and what Paul is saying in this text. And it, it, in other words, we can see kind of squirrel and go this way and, and forget the main thing. I don't want us to forget the main thing this morning. Um, and it's this. As we've said, the way to salvation is not through work or you being perfect in the law. It's not about you being perfectly obedient or pure. It, it, it's not about our righteousness. If it were, we'd be doomed. We would be doomed. Salvation is not through your work. Church, salvation is through Christ's work. That's the point. That's the big point. In other words, to trust in Christ is salvation. To trust in you is condemnation. That's the point. That's, that's what he's driving us. Now, um, having said that, would you allow me to geek out, maybe nerd out for just a minute? I think it'll be worth it. If you say no, I'm going to do it anyway, but um, I hope that this will be helpful. But um, I think as we do this, something's going to become a little clear. So verse 10 is, is the verse that we're looking at. For with the heart one believes and is justified, right? And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So allow me to geek out for just a moment um, because I want us to see something here. This is an example of parallelism. You're like, oh, this is going to be dorky. I get it. I get it. Hang with me, because I think this is important. Um, and let me give you a really easy example of what I'm talking about, because I think if we see the really easy example, then we're going to be able to see it really clearly in Romans 10. Uh, so easy example, this has nothing to do with our text. This is just so we can understand our text better. Easy example is Psalm uh, 38, 13, and 14. I don't expect you to have that one memorized. If you do, that's great. But um, this one's really easy to see. You don't even need to turn with me there if you don't want to. But it says this, verse 13, but I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Verse 14, I have become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth there are no rebukes. 
See the parallelism there? You see how they're the same thing? We have deaf not hearing, mute not speaking, right? Just repeat it. And so here's the reality. Verses 13 and 14 say the same thing. They say the same thing. Verse 13 says, I'm like a deaf man, can't hear. A mute man can't open his mouth. Verse 14, become like a man who doesn't hear and whose mouth there are no rebukes. It's the same thing. The same thing. So with these verses, if we were studying these verses, we would not be trying to look for distinctions, differences. Like he said, deaf here, but not here at this verse. What does that mean? No, we're not looking for distinctions when we look at this. And and it's saying the same thing. It's reiterating the same concepts. It's, It's giving us more clarity. And it's easy to see this in this psalm. It's easy to see the parallelism in this psalm where they're saying the same thing. I would encourage you, to read verse 10 of Romans 10 in a very similar way. For with the the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Our goal here is not to make distinctions between those two lines, to pull out all the differences and the nuances of those two lines. I would argue that the goal here is to see the parallelism. To see, instead of looking for distinctions, to see that Paul is saying the same thing. So here's an example. Uh, It says justified and saved. Church, those are interchangeable terms. Like that's, he's saying, he's referring to the same thing. He's talking about, he's not talking about two different processes. He's talking about one. Justification, salvation. In a similar way, we have heart and we have mouth. We have believing and we have confessing. I would argue Paul is not referring to two vastly different processes, but one that this is confession and conviction in Jesus, same process. We should not be looking for differences, distinctions between the two. Rather, we should see that Paul is giving us a process. The one thing, I would, I would see this as Paul pointing to our conviction and our confession in Jesus and that these are the sides of the same coin. That our conviction is, is, is the content of our confession, and that our confession is just giving words to the conviction. Sides of the same coin. And because this is true, we should not try to use this text to pull things apart that, God, that, that Paul didn't mean for us to be pulling apart but rather to see how Paul is referring to the same process. So there's a theologian pastor, uh, John Calvin, who says this really well uh, as he thinks about this text. He says, it is quite nonsensical to insist that there is a fire when there is neither flame nor heat. What he's getting at here, church, to use this analogy, is that Jesus is, or the fire is Jesus, 
and the flame and the heat. It's our heart and our tongue. Our conviction and our confession. And it's crazy, he says, like quite nonsensical. I wish I talked like that. Um, I'll just say crazy. It's crazy to say that I have the fire of Jesus, but do I really need the flame? Do I really need the heat? What if I just have one of them? Is that going to be good? Quite nonsensical. Quite nonsensical. Salvation in Christ is about faith in Jesus, and our faith in Jesus is about our belief and profession in Jesus. Paul's not trying to get us to pull them apart. Christ is the fire, and our confession and conviction are simply the aspects of that fire burning in us. That's what it is. I got to tell you something else. Let me rephrase that. I get to tell you something else because this is just awesome. Um, Verse 11 says, continuing on with this, for scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do we see in these these verses? I got to pull two things out here before we close and respond. The first is, would you notice the beautiful and wonderful assurance that we have in Jesus? You hear everyone who believes, there's that heart again, by the way, and everyone who calls, what do you know? There's that, that mouth again. Everyone who believes and everyone who calls, they will be saved. They will not be put to shame. To use our man Moses' words, they can do it. So there's assurance here in Jesus. Do you know that you know that you know that you are in Christ? Do you know that you know that you know? That you are saved. Do you know that you know that you know that you are a child of God? And if your life ended today, that you would be with Jesus. That you would be in eternity with God in Christ. Do you know this? Church, this text tells us that we can know. I can't even say this without a smile on my face. It's great to be a gospel preacher. You can know that you are his. Today, you can know. Why? Because everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on him will be saved. Let's respond to Christ this morning in, in, in heart and in mouth. Conviction and confession. We trust and confess to all who would hear that he is Lord. Because when you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. You can count on it. You can rest on it. It's your assurance. Um, But there's a second thing here, and I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, The message of the gospel is all-inclusive exclusivity. 
you hear that and you think, Pastor, that doesn't make any sense. It probably doesn't. I made this word up. But it, I think I'm trying to do my best to wrap my mind around this, okay? So here's what I mean. It's all-inclusive. If you just look at this text, you have everyone who believes. You have no distinction between Jew and Greek. You have the same Lord, the Lord of all. You have Riches on all who call on him. You have everyone who calls will be saved. This is people from all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all cultures. It's all inclusive. And this all inclusiveness, if you have any doubt, includes you. It includes me. The message of the gospel is all-inclusive, and at the same time, church, it is exclusive, meaning it is a call to all, yet there is only one way, one name by which we are saved. It's a call for all, but the message is the same for all, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to him but by, comes to the Father but by him. The message of the gospel is one of this beautiful, all-inclusive exclusivity. And so this morning, all are welcome to come. All are welcome to come. The way and the way of salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. So we drop our attempts to work or perform, to meet him halfway, to trust in our own work, and instead we trust in his, and we know with assurance that we are his and that we are saved. See, we believe in our heart, confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. Church, let's do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, I want to do something just a little bit different. This morning, before we sing and respond, I want to rest in this moment for just, just a second. I believe you have something for us, Lord, and I believe that you have been working in us. I believe the truth of your word. And I believe that for so many of us, we need to be reminded that we didn't find you, that we didn't run to the heavens to bring you down, we didn't go into the depths to bring you up, but that you and your great mercy and your patience and love and kindness and your grace you came to us. You met us. Your heart is for the broken. Not for the broken who are trying to fix themselves, but for the broken, the truly broken. And I, I know that for many of us, that has been our testimony. And I pray that in this moment, for all of us who are, that is true, that you would remind us 
Remind us of what you have done. Remind us of who we are. Remind us of your grace. Remind us that you came to us. Remind us that we are yours. Remind us that we are saved. Remind us that nothing will separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remind us. And God, I pray for those who are uncertain. I pray for anyone here who, if we're honest, would would step back and say, "I, I don't have that assurance. I pray that right now, not through anything I say, but through your word and through your spirit, draw our hearts to Jesus, that we would believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus for our salvation, that we would proclaim Jesus with our mouth, that we would confess that he is Lord. And I pray that as we do, like your word says, that that assurance would flood our heart and that we would know that we know that we know that we are yours that we would know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Lord, in this moment, I pray that you would do a work. We don't want to rush. Lord, would you speak?